On today's episode of Secrecy Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand, I got a chance to sit down with Jesse Randall from Twitter VC. We talked everything venture capital. We talked valuations. We talked uh, how to actually become venture qualified or what is venture qualified. Uh, actually, <laughs> newsflash, uh, it's pretty hard to become venture qualified. Uh, there's a, a special sort of special sauce that it takes. We talked all of this stuff. Really great conversation. We could have kept going and going and going. It was just awesome. You guys are not going to want to miss this one. If you are a mid seven figure brand and above, listen up. Are you struggling with ads this year? Uh, how about growth in general? What about profitability? Supply chain issues got you down? You are not alone. As a brand owner myself, I totally get this. iOS 14 has ravaged many smaller brands. The good news, our clients at Upgrowth and the brands that we own have not been touched. Don't get me wrong. We had to fight to figure out how to advertise effectively in a post-surveillance ad world, but we learned some incredible lessons along the way, and we want to share some of those lessons with you. So go to www.upgrowthcommerce.com grow to apply for a free growth plan today so we can show you what is working in a post iOS 14.5 world. Again, that is www.upgrowthcommerce.com grow. Now, on to today's episode. Someone on my team thought I either had superpowers or woke up at 5 a.m. to crunch client numbers. Turns out, I just used Triple Whale. Yeah, that's what one of their customers said, and he may be onto something. No one has to know the secret weapon to your success is Triple Whale's powerful analytics platform, built to accurately pinpoint your ad spend across networks, making you look like the smartest person in the room. Their robust app helps you clarify your campaign's performance so you can run smarter, faster, more effective ad spends in real time and reap the rewards. Are you a genius? Only one way to find out. Guys, want to take Triple Whale for a spin? Stop by triplewhale.com upgrowth and use promo code upgrowth for 15% off. Now on to today's episode. Hey guys, Jordan West back with another episode of Secrets to Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand. Today I am joined by a uh, friend all the way from Boulder, Colorado, Jesse Randall from Sweater VC. Jesse, welcome to Secrets to Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand. Hey, thanks. You know, it's great to be on here, Jordan, with the infamous Jordan West. So glad to be here. We, last time I was in Boulder, which I'm not in Boulder often, everyone, just so you know, it's not like, you know, I, I, I uh, vacation in Boulder. I was able to have, sit down and have coffee with you, which was uh, amazing. That was, yeah, that was just an absolute treat. So I'm looking forward to talking all things venture capital with you today, because I feel like this is one of those things that a lot of brands just don't know how to navigate. We've kind of grown up in this world where, you know, a there's a lot of bootstrapping going on, maybe some angel investing from family and, and that sort of thing. But a lot of brands, mm -hmm. you know, they look at Shark Tank. They look at, for us in Canada, they look at Dragon's Den and they think, oh, that's what it must be like when we go into these pitches. That's what it must be like. We're going to have to give up everything essentially just to get some, you know, one of these sharks or dragons on board. And that's what oh, we yeah. know, right? So for people who don't know anything about you or Sweater, just give us the, the 50,000 foot overview. Oh, for sure. And I can't wait to dive in on the misconceptions 
of Shark Tank and Dragon's Den. Okay, we, we need to talk about that. <laughs> yes. But yeah, yeah, first quick intro. So uh, Jesse Randall, I've been an entrepreneur for 15 years. I've uh, been professionally inside the startup VC ecosystem for about a decade now. Currently operating a fintech company called Sweater that specializes in offering a venture capital fund that anyone can invest into. And if you're not familiar with that world, typically if you want to invest in an actual VC fund, you have to cut quarter million, half a million dollar check if you can even get in at all. And we're taking that minimum all the way down to $500 and making it so literally anyone can invest. Uh, you can be accredited, unaccredited, big institutions, small, you know, college student, small college student, you know, a young college student without much money. I mean, like whatever the case is, anyone can participate with Sweater. It's all delivered through a mobile app. So it sits in the palm of your hand. And our objective is to really give you that courtside seat feeling of being inside the venture capital community while also benefiting from the upside of it instead of just being an observer. Let's talk about that for a second. And I know we've had these conversations before, but I really want other people to to understand this old boys club that was the VC world, right? Why? Why did you have to be an accredited investor? Why couldn't regular people participate in this? Like, I, I don't get it. It's like, where's the democracy in in the this financial system? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like, standing today, it, it is very outdated. But at the time these laws were put in place, it made a lot of sense. I mean, at least in the United States, everything tracks back to the 1933 Securities Act and the 1940 Investment Company Act, which are super boring to read, by the way. <laughs> but they were both birthed out of the Great Depression and all of the scandals and garbage that went down during that period of time and, and all the regular people that really got screwed. And again, in that time period, it was pretty easy to be a snake oil salesman and to take mm. advantage of people. And so kind of the, the foundation of the law was really really around this notion of protecting widows and orphans and, you know, putting regulations in place that could punish people for doing stupid things, right? And taking advantage mm. of people is really what it's rooted yeah. in. But, you know, the 1930s yeah. and 1940s were a very different time than what we have today. The overall population is far more educated. You know, people understand investing markets more. There's far more investing power in our own hands. You know, there's more uh, access to information than there's ever been. And so totally. times have changed, but the regulations haven't. If anything, they've even gotten more strict. And so, you know, our purpose is really to say, to call that into question and to find a way to open up the asset class so that the 99% of us can invest alongside the 1% that can afford to actually totally. do this. And, but while also maintaining consumer protections and really like in the spirit of why all this stuff was put in place in the first place. So there's, there's a long, long history there, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's ultimately inequitable. Yeah. Walk me through, because I think a lot of people don't understand. I remember actually the first time I talked to you, so I was, we were in in the midst, you were advising on an acquisition that we did on the opposite side. And so I got a great chance to, to pick your brain on things and just talk with you and get to know you in this in this situation. And I remember being like, like you were talking about sweater and, and what you're doing. And I was like, okay, like what kinds of companies? And you're like, well, we're doing like pre-seed and seed and series A. And I'm like, cool. Like literally no idea what any of that <laughs> meant at the time. I, I feel like I've got, I've got a little bit of a better idea now, but like, can you explain to me where in the market and why in the market v venture capital exists? Where does it come in and kind of some of the why behind it? Oh yeah. Excellent question. And you know, it, it's so funny because we all kind of participate or consume the products that come out of venture backed companies, but we usually mm. don't realize that companies are venture backed, you know? 
So like whether you're taking an Uber or, you know, you're getting something from Grubhub or, you know, you're buying some direct consumer product that, you know, is blowing up or whatever. Not everything is venture back, but a lot of it is. And so it's interesting that like, it's sort of like the, the secret bank behind what would otherwise be unbankable companies, right? So venture capital fills the gap between bootstrapping and trying to run things off of cash flow that's coming in the door and being advanced enough and a trustworthy enough entity from a bank's perspective to actually be able to take advantage of banking products. There's this huge gap that's in between. Can I just step in for for one second and <laughs> yeah, say yeah, what an insane yeah, yeah. gap that is? Like, Oh, it's enormous. I, it's for companies like our companies are incredibly profitable and the banks essentially don't want to give us anything ever. And we have to like mm-hmm. sign over the, you know, the deed of our firstborn second child uh, like everything it's like oh my gosh I, I cannot believe that this that there is this incredible gap so anyway i just wanted to say from from somebody who has profitable businesses it's it's insane yeah no and, and that's excellent experience you know i mean and you've been able to build those companies from nothing up to where they're at and then these banking institutions still don't trust you you know as as a business entity and so you know if you were to want to take i mean i, I guess one of the other big purposes of venture capital is to provide really rocket fuel to be able to take advantage of a market opportunity very very, very quickly, much more quickly than you could off of cash flows. So even if you are profitable and you're putting every penny back in, you can only do so much because you're, you're constrained on the amount of capital you have. So venture capital is specifically saying, we believe in the growth that can happen in this business and we are fronting the money so that you can, in a way, get way ahead of your sales cycle and be able to cover the gap in investing upfront in the business rather than investing in the business as the cash flow allows you to. Totally. So not, not every company quite qualifies for that kind of a business situation. So we call it venture qualified. Yeah. I was going to ask you this question, Jesse. I was like, oh yeah, I want to figure (laughs) out what does venture qualified mean? Yeah. Yeah. So venture qualified, (laughs) it's it's basically, it's in the DNA of the business opportunity itself. Right. And there's not much you can do about it as a founder. I mean, you you can, you can spin a story and try to make something venture qualified, but ultimately if the opportunity and, you know, the technology or the product and the team doesn't have the right dynamics to be able to grow to the level that is required for this type of investment, then you're not going to raise money from venture capitalists. And, and, you know, in many circumstances, probably not from angel investors either, because they're playing the same game just on a personal level instead of as a, a formal fund. So can you let me know what, what is the difference between an angel investor and a and VC? Yeah. So, um, I mean, a venture capital fund is basically, well, let's start with angels. An angel is just a, a wealthy individual that qualifies as an accredited investor. And with that qualification, it means that they can invest directly into companies, into private companies specifically. So in the United States, at least, uh, the qualification to be accredited is to have made at least 200000 a year in salary for two years or more. Yeah. Or like as an individual or $300,000 a year in combination with your spouse for two years or more, or have a million dollars or more of net assets outside the value of your primary residence. So if you check any of those boxes, then you're an accredited investor and you can invest directly in individual companies of any, any sort, but like it's just particularly in private, right? So a venture capital fund is basically taking its it's that on steroids. So they're aggregating individual contributions from lots of accredited investors and from much bigger institutions that are, and they're pooling that money into a fund of say, whatever, hundred million dollars. And then it's professionally managed by people that all they do all day long is just examine private companies. And they're trying to find that diamond in the rough that aligns with their investment thesis. And then they give them that money and support them after the fact to help them achieve that growth. So 
you know, from, from that perspective, it's, it's like the little guy versus an institution is, is kind of the way to think about it. Gotcha. Can you give me a few checklist items that you guys are looking for to qualify somebody as venture qualified? Because I feel like there's a lot fewer companies in the e-commerce space that would be venture qualified. Am I correct in that? Well, it kind of depends, you know, I mean, it all comes back to the, the size and kind of explosiveness of the category. I mean, if we want to talk about, why don't we step back for a second and talk about venture qualified a little more broadly and then come back to yeah. e-commerce Thank you. specifically. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when you're looking at a company and let's just stick to early stage companies specifically and not later okay. stage, more mature companies. So early stage companies at what would be pre-seed or seed round, like you alluded to earlier, are basically companies that are either pre-revenue or very early on in their revenue, say doing less than 100,000 a month in revenue, right? Usually. Okay. And it, it's different based on your industry and all kinds of nuance that's, that's, that's in there. But generally, let's just say companies are doing less than 100,000 a month in revenue. As an investor, we're looking at that and we're looking at two big categories. The first one is examining the product and the market opportunity itself and saying, okay, how big is this market? What are the dynamics like in this market? Yeah. And what is the depth of the pain or the, the opportunity that's out there? Like, what is this feeling that is the need that's being fulfilled and how acute is that? Because if it's like a Band-Aid, it's, it's probably not going to have enough demand out there to really take advantage of it. But if, yeah. you know, if it's a severed arm and there's a bleeding artery and they have a way to fix it, that's a much different opportunity, which usually, you know, especially if it's a unique product that can fulfill that, then there's higher margin and bigger ability to come in and have people make it worth their while to pay to fix the problem or to provide the opportunity, however you want to look at that dichotomy. Yeah, so totally. There's there's a whole element around that, right? I think of uh, one of our recent sponsors, Triple Whale, filled that okay. need post iOS 14.5, where it was like, we have no visibility on things. No one is giving us visibility. We don't have a place to aggregate everything. Triple Whale comes in and explodes, right? I wish I could have got in on that early oh, yeah. because I knew I was like, I know that this is such a massive need for every single person who's advertising. <laughs> so anyway, that, that, sorry, that, is keep, exact, keep that is exactly right. You know, And it's those kind of opportunities that are explosive. They're in the moment. There's a land grab opportunity to, to establish yeah. a brand and own the market, right? So it's, it's like that, those kind of situations on the product and market opportunity size. And there's tons of nuance and lots of details you could go into there, but high level, it's that side. The other side is the founders, right? And really looking at the founding team and the capability of that team, the experience in the space, their ability to execute, their ability to attract talent, their ability to raise more money in the future. There, there's so many items about the people who are running it because, you yeah. know, how do they say it? Uh, an A-level team can take a B-level idea and make it sing, but you hand mm. an A-level idea to a B-level team and they could screw it up all day long, right? And yeah. so it's, if you can get an A on both sides of that equation, you really have something interesting. And so that's the kind of thing that you're looking for, like when you're trying to qualify if a business can get there. And so there's tons of businesses that are awesome businesses. They're great cash flowing businesses. There's good opportunity. You've carved out a good niche, but there may not be that explosiveness associated with it that is really required to make the math work behind venture. This month's sponsor is Triple Whale. Triple Whale's powerful analytics platform clarifies your ad performance across marketing channels, keeping you instantly in the know. Go to triplewhale.com slash upgrowth and use promo code upgrowth for 15% off today. Now, back to today's episode. Totally, totally. So speaking of the math, let's, let's talk about that math in the form of valuations, right? Because you guys are always looking at like, well, what are these companies valued at? 
I have found personally going into this world because, you know, we've done acquisitions in the past. We've done a few of them. And the valuations on an acquisition are much different than the valuations when raising capital. Can you explain to me the nuances there? And like, why is that? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think the biggest thing, it's probably twofold. Like if we really say the difference between acquiring a company in a venture setting versus a traditional business setting, and that comes down to momentum and the size of the opportunity ahead. So momentum is probably the biggest factor. You know, it's like looking backwards and saying, how fast has this company been growing? And, you know, a typical, like really aggressive growth rate would be double digit growth month over month for X amount of time before, right? So over the course of a year, you could be, you know, tripling in size or more. And of course, it's, it's, there's kind of a curve to that, right? I mean, you can have really explosive growth in the early days and then, it, you know, eventually that, that month over month growth rate trends down, but your numbers are bigger, right? So, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, you might experience a, 10x growth in your first 12 months, the next 12 months might be 8x, the next 12 months after that might be 5x or 4x, right? And eventually you're down to 2x, but then you're dealing with, you know, nine digit numbers. And, you know, it's just different when you get there. So the momentum of where you're at, uh, matched with the stage of where you are, makes a big difference. And then it's the size of the opportunity, right? The size of the global, you know, uh, one-off ride transportation industry, as Uber was attacking it, is absolutely enormous. It's massive, right? Yeah. The mortgage industry is absolutely massive, right? And so then you start getting into more niche products and it makes it kind of more difficult depending on how you go after it, right? So the, those opportunities are often measured in like total market opportunity, which you know can be, there's often third-party reporting that you can kind of rely on for that, right? But if you're going okay. in doing something that's, that's really narrow, it makes it more difficult to justify a big margin because once you acquire it, you may not be able to go much further, right? You're going to tap out at some point. And a lot of acquisitions uh, in the venture world have higher multiples because they know that they can still take the business another 10x or 20x, right? Which adds to that ability to pay a premium for it. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, let's talk about the founders who come to you or come to VC firms. What do they need to have in place when they're going to come and pitch to a VC firm? And secondly, are you guys ever plucking companies out and saying, oh man, I'd love to invest in there and going the opposite way? Or is it all inbound? Oh no, it's definitely a two-way street. Yeah, I mean, we have to talk about the way Sweater does it. We've got a few different channels. So uh, we definitely have an inbound channel and you know the ability for people to come directly to us. You can download the app, there's a link in there and you can submit um, your application and your materials to sweater directly that way. We're actually going to be doing a lot of outbound actual advertising, which VCs typically don't do, but we're direct. Cool. We're, we're a very different animals. So we're going to be yeah. launching that sometime in the next, you know, probably two or three months and actually like advertising to founders saying sweater is a great partner you should come work with us and be putting that out there. So that's kind of like our inbound side. Uh, But from an outbound perspective, we have two other angles that we take. So um, we have an expansive VC partnership network. We've got 50 plus VC funds that we actually have handshakes with that we're on the phone, you know, every four to six weeks, just talking about deal flow that we're seeing and understanding the specific thesis that each side has so that we understand what we're all looking for. And then Mm. when we have deals that could work out, then we share those opportunities. So there's a bunch of that. We also have a scout network of about 156 scouts uh, that are spread across the country and in their local communities and circles, they're always just, you know, they have their, the scales taken off their eyes and, and they're sort of activated to look for cool opportunities. And we get a lot of companies coming in from that as well. That's great. Of the, you know, of a hundred companies that you look at, how many are you going to fund in that sort of realm? Oh, it's, that's a hard question. I mean, like 
<laughs> I wish I could fund everybody, but ultimately it's my job to not fund everybody yeah, because absolutely. I have a, you know, us, like we as a fund, like we're fiduciaries for our investors. And so yeah. we have this responsibility to make sure that we invest in only the very highest qualified deals that we can get our hands on, you know, and a lot of that is circumstantial. So in a way it's like, you know, if we see a hundred deals, you know, we're, we're going to have in any given month for us, the way our fund works is we'll have a certain budget that we have set aside that we are looking for opportunities. There's kind of a range there. And so as we, examine opportunities, we know that we could, we have this big mix of check sizes that we can write. And we're looking at our current portfolio at, at all the different stages that we have a current mix of. And we're examining all that saying, okay, like what, you know, and we're, we're looking at a hundred companies say, and we might talk to 20, like we're going to see a hundred pitch decks. We might talk to 25. We might go into diligence on 10 of them. Right. And we might make investments in a couple. You know, so okay. like, yeah, uh, but that doesn't mean that like those are the only venture qualified ones in there. Those are just the ones that fit us at this moment in time, which is why totally. fundraising from a founder's perspective is hard and frustrating and it's kind of long because you're just playing this game of, you know, is this the right moment in time for the investor as well as for me? And, you know, do yeah. we have this match of vision of, of the future? You know, so like kind of a typical stat that's often out there is usually as a founder, you have to pitch 50 times before you get your first check. And that's mm. mostly just like matchmaking, you know, and there's no good way to go about it except to go directly and have all these conversations. There's no shortcut, not yet at least. I wonder if that's difficult for founders sometimes who are probably used to getting a lot of yeses from their team and from <laughs> other people around them. Like I picture, you know, cause I'm dipping my toes into this world a little bit and I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to hear no that often, Jesse. <laughs> well, I have a lot of empathy for that because I am a founder first. I just happen That's to right. have a VC yeah. fund that we run, right? I mean, we're a fintech company, right? We've raised equity for Sweater itself, right? There's Sweater Inc. that is the fintech company. And then there's the Sweater Cashmere yes. Fund, which is the fund itself, right? And so yep. I do get to deploy capital and talk to other founders, but I'm also out there pounding the pavement too. And, you know, it's it's hard and it's a grind and it does stink to get told no a lot. But ultimately, I mean, like that's it's just the nature of the game. And if you are doing something that has a big enough opportunity, it's usually pretty hard to see the opportunity for what it is, especially in the early days, because if it's super mm. obvious, then it's like, well, I mean, is this really an opportunity? How much competition is out there? If you if this is that obvious, then like how many other people are doing this? You know, and so there's kind of a natural skepticism for something that seems too easy. So if you're really yeah. doing something that's going to change the status quo, you often are going to get told no a lot. You know, like looking at like Triple Whale, I imagine they were able to take advantage of that opportunity in that moment in time because they were building that technology years before it was ever that big of a problem. And when totally. the problem hit, they already had the technology available to to take advantage of that moment in time. And I, I say all yeah. the time, you can't buy timing, right? So I would imagine Triple Whale had just perfect timing. Everything was built, ready to go. They had money in the bank. And then Facebook makes these changes and it's like, holy crap, we're like extraordinarily relevant right now. And they could take yeah. advantage of that opportunity. But in the years preceding that, I imagine it was a grind for them saying, oh, we yeah. provide all these analytics and it's independent of Facebook. And I would imagine investors saying, you know what? Why, why would anyone buy that? They get all the analytics that they want from Facebook directly. So why, yeah. why would anyone use a third party tool, you know, and just like doubting them until it became relevant, right? So it's always totally. a grind. It yeah. doesn't, yeah, it, it's difficult to see behind the curtain sometimes. Totally. And that's where, I don't know how it works with you guys. I get phone calls all the time or people wanting to book in for, to talk about some of these technologies because I know the e-com space fairly well. And so mm -hmm. people doing some research and due diligence or whatever, asking about these things because they literally don't know if you're not 
in the world, it's like, like I can tell you, oh, this company is going to, I, I don't know why I'm not doing investing in some of these companies because I'm like, I understand. <laughs> I'm like, no, that one's not going to work. That one's, there's not a big enough need right there. But I don't think that everybody, unless you're in the nuanced world, you may not actually understand the massive potential for some of these things. Jesse, oh, I, yeah. I, I got another question for you here and then we're going to start to wrap up a little bit. It's 2022. We're recording this in early August of 2022. You know, yesterday was a good day on the stock market. One of, you know, maybe three this year or something uh, in, in tech. <laughs> and um, right. I'm, I'm wondering what does the VC world look like for the next year? Ooh, astute question. Well, I'll tell you what, there is a lot of pain in the VC world on both sides of the equation for founders and for VCs. You know, it's it's a complicated equation because founders have this incentive to maximize the value of their company, right? Because the higher the value of the company, the less of their company they give up when they raise money, right? Yeah. But there's this inherent quandary with that because if you overvalue your company, then and you overvalue it too much, now you're not acquirable or the, the numbers don't work, right? It's just yeah. like public yeah, companies. Yeah, totally. It's just the numbers are way more nuanced and and behind the scenes, you know? So, I mean, you take a company like WeWork, you know, three or four years ago when they tried to IPO. I don't know if you remember that, but, you know, they were trying to oh, IPO absolutely. like a $64 billion valuation or something. Their previous round was at $48 billion, But when they released all the documentation for what was actually going on underneath the surface uh, as part of the IPO process, everyone was like, wait a minute, there's like nothing here. This company is not worth $64 billion. <laughs> <laughs> the like $3 million daily burn yeah, rate. And, that, and... <laughs> and the house of cards fell apart, right? And yeah. now, you know, they, they ended up going public for like $7 billion, And now I think they're worth like $3 billion is like their current valuation. You know, I, that, this was a couple of weeks ago that I last looked at their numbers. So, you know, it's like, how did you ever think you were worth $64 billion when public markets are now telling you you're worth three? You know, and th there's this incentive though to, to go up and up, right? And totally. it's, it's weird because the relationship between a founder and a VC in the moment that they're negotiating a deal is that the founder wants a higher valuation and the VC in that moment wants a lower valuation because that means they're going to capture more ownership in the company. Yeah. But once they've yeah. had that marriage, now they're both aligned in the next round to push that valuation right. as high as possible because now they're both going to be giving up more of their own stake in the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because everyone's know. getting diluted at that point. Yeah. Everyone right? will you, get diluted. You together that, are right? getting diluted. Yeah. Yes. So you play this, this game round by round by round, right? And mm. there was so much money sloshing around in the VC ecosystem the last few years that there was way more money than there was that there were companies. And so these founders had all this leverage to say, oh, well, you know, I could I could raise twice as much money at a three X valuation and, and give up less of my company, but have way more money available to make my dream. Happen. Totally. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. But, you know, it's it's all good when when there's plenty of money and everything's going up and up and up. But what happened in the last six months is that basically the you know, somebody opened the shades and the sunshine came in and nobody was wearing any pants. And so valuations now yeah. are just dropping like crazy and everything is basically correcting. And so that's painful for VCs because all these companies that they marked up and up and up are being marked down, which is hard for them in their portfolio. And founders yeah. are in a ton of pain because they got used to this idea of having their valuations being way up here and now they're coming down. And so they overhired, they, they yeah. overspent. And now they have to raise on those lower valuations 
they have to let, raise and lower valuations, which sucks for everybody. And the ones that get screwed the hardest are the founders because of the way that terms work with VCs. Um, and so they're in pain. I mean, like it's it's just a really tough place to be if your company was actively raising money over the last three years. And so, mm. yeah, it's it's a hard spot. Every, everybody's feeling the crunch. And I suspect it's probably going to be another six months of reshuffling and everyone trying to figure out where all this pricing is going to level out. And then the market will carry on because there's still a ton of money out there. But now all the money's scared because they don't want to invest in something and then have it be worth half the price six months later. Right. So everyone yeah. is just super cautious. One more practical kind of question. Generally, where do VCs exit? in the life stage of a company? Yeah, I think it, it depends on the stage. I would say that. That's probably the, the biggest difference there. But I mean, for a broad term, call it maturity <laughs> or, okay. opportun or opportunistically, right? I mean, like usually like when, when you're starting to get to kind of like, I don't know, it, it totally depends because there's a difference between like an IPO exit and being acquired. Like if you're going to get acquired, the acquiring company wants to see, like usually wants to see still substantial growth opportunity after that to make the yeah. acquisition worth it. You know, like when Facebook bought Instagram for $2 billion when they were 18 months old or however old they were, yeah. right? And now Instagram is worth, you know, 100 billion plus. That was a great purchase, right? But if Instagram yeah. had stayed private and somehow survived and gotten to be worth 50 billion, well, who would have bought them then? Nobody, right? Totally. So they, yeah. they would have they'd have to IPO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so so for an investor, it's really just about maximizing that opportunity and examining the risk of being acquired versus staying on longer and trying to IPO and then seeing what public markets will do. It's, it's yeah. a super sticky kind of a question. There, there's no good answer, honestly. Well, hey, you you gave a great nuanced answer. Jesse, I got to ask you the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. What is your secret to scaling? Ooh, I think you need to do things that other people don't don't do. Right. If if you are doing the same techniques and you are using the same materials and um, you know the same mode of thinking and the same processes and the same experience for your customers, you will be the same as everyone else. And customers will treat you that way. Your acquisition numbers will reflect that. The loyalty of your customers will reflect that. So when you choose to do something that really makes you stand out and you take some risks and you put, I guess, <laughs> you, you kind of put some stuff on the line and do something that's worth remembering, that's going to be what separates you from everybody else and will give you the opportunity to scale regardless of, of what type of company you're in, whether it's a traditional solid cash flowing company or a venture qualified company, in either circumstance, you need to do something that's worth remembering. Because if you don't, then you're kind of in the sea of sameness and it's going to yeah. be very difficult to find success. I love that. I want to piggyback on that for a second. I think that we, a lot of e-com founders that were starting to, you know, get into the sort of seven figure range, maybe eight, nine, they, maybe not nine actually, <laughs> but they got lulled into this sense that whatever they did would, would work, right? Like with Facebook, it was just like, you just, whatever you do, it's going to work. And that just is not the case anymore. And so, so now we're starting to see the, the cream rise, right? And, mm -hmm. and people actually having to do the things that you're talking about. And it's been incredibly painful for a lot of companies. A lot of people have come to our agency, Upgrowth Commerce, in that situation where they're like, our revenue is down 70% year over year. What do we do? Right? Because the old stuff wasn't working. And that's really scary. So I, I would take Jesse's advice to heart, guys. It's it's uh, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to differentiate yourself in the sea of mediocrity. Yeah, it's a great summary. And man, does it hurt to have that stuff happening, you know, and you got to reinvent yourself and reinvent the way you do things and survive. Yeah. Jesse, I got three more quick questions for you. I hope that you are ready. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Question number one, favorite tool or app that you're using right now? Ooh, 
tough. You know, I'm a LinkedIn guy, so I really like this. Uh... You are a LinkedIn guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really like this tool. Oh my gosh, what's it called? It's called Shield Analytics, and it provides all kinds of cool insights into every like your your whole impact and reach on LinkedIn. And I love what? it. What? How do I? How have you not told me about this before, Jesse? Shield yeah, Analytics. Asked, okay. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Shield Analytics. It's awesome. It's uh, it, it's totally worth it. So I, I mean, I love LinkedIn. I'm a business guy. I live on there. So that's probably my favorite one. Totally. Uh, I'm just going to say it one more time. I've said it like virtually every episode for, you know, almost 400 episodes here. Go guys, it does not matter what stage of, of business that you were in, go on LinkedIn. That is where everybody is. That is the place to be. Whether you're thinking of, you know, raising funds at some point, whether you're thinking of strategic acquisitions or getting acquired, just be on LinkedIn. That's where, that's where all those people are. That's where they hang yeah, out. No, it's, it's 100% worth it. I mean, like I've been really consistent for about three years and I checked my stats last week and I've had over 10 million impressions on my posts over the last 12 months. It's been phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. I've mentioned your name to somebody before and they're like, oh yeah, like I know him from LinkedIn. Like I see his posts all the time. That guy's unreal. Yeah, that's still weird. Well, he's my friend, okay? (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) Second question for you, Jesse. Uh, Favorite podcast or audiobook that you're listening to right now? Ooh, you know, I'm more of an, an audiobook guy. The Comfort Crisis has been my favorite book this last year. Ooh. Not as not as business building related, more of a personal building yourself related. Not like self help. It's not like that. But like the whole notion is, it basically just calls out the world that we live in and how we don't have to suffer through anything anymore. You know, yeah. like we, we're in you know climate controlled conditions 97 percent of the time. We drive everywhere. We we have three meals a day. You know, most people three meals a day like all the time. No one ever dies unless they're old for the most part. I mean, aside from COVID, this book was written for COVID, you know, um, you don't have to do anything physically straining, you know, I mean, just like everything, like across the entire spectrum of the human experience, we don't suffer through anything anymore. And Mm. so they call it the comfort crisis is basically like recognizing this. And because we we never suffer from anything, we make mountains out of molehills when really, if you can anchor your life in these experiences that are really hard and you purposefully bring something into your life that challenges you mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever, then it, it acts as like this reality check. And then everything else that happens in your life is in context that it, and your life's pretty good. So, so, so I, I love the method behind <laughs> it. It's, it's so good. Yeah. Oh, that's great. We'll make sure to put that one in the show notes, guys. Uh, just a quick pile on there. For anyone who doesn't know, I was a paramedic for 12 years. And it's incredible the perspective that that gives you on normal life. You know, it's like even the the most mundane calls that we would go to, which was, you know, 80% of them for us, <laughs> were the worst possible day that somebody would ever have. And you realize you're like, oh, yeah, like our, our lives are pretty darn good. So that's great. I'm going to read that one or listen to that one. Good, so good context. Uh, Jesse, I got one more question for you. Uh, we're we're almost out of time here. If you could sit down with anybody, you get an hour with them. They have to be alive. You can have some coffee, tea. I don't think you're a drinker, so no beer or wine. Can't be Elon Musk. Who would it be? Shoot. Who do I admire? <laughs> I'm going to say something really controversial and probably not for the reason that you think. You ready for this one? I hope yeah, you don't have I'm to ready. edit it out. I would want to sit down with, with Donald Trump. Not because I like the guy, but because he's such a controversial figure. I'm, I'm curious as to his mental state and how he can take such a beating everywhere he goes and in everything he does. And he still has the utmost confidence and 
like, I, I don't know, confidence is probably the right word. I mean, you know, he's probably somewhere on the sociopath scale that probably contributes to that. Yeah. But he's been beaten up his whole life and he just always sticks with who he is and what he believes. And I find that to be incredible. I've never seen anyone get beat up as much as Donald Trump. And I really yeah. don't like his character. I can hardly stand to like watch his speeches and and hear about the things he rants <laughs> about and the, and the things that he believes. But it's more like the, the, the backing of like being able to stand for something you believe in, even if it's crazy. Like, how do you do that with a straight face and like, yeah. without ever like losing energy. And I'd be very curious to just like dive in on that with him and see what like what is what what does that in? Um, yeah, because I've never seen it. It would else be incredible. I, like I'm, I'm with you, Jesse. I, I have similar thoughts on on him as a person. But I'm like, I want to know, is that who you actually are? Like, are you actually that at the core? Or are you just playing this game? Like, that's that's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and I mean, seriously, like, I don't, I don't agree with the guy on, on many things, but you know, something about getting beat up because in my perspective, the world is becoming so much more polarized that at some point in your life, you're going to have to start taking your own stands on things. And you're going to have to decide whether or not you, you're just going to congeal with what everyone tells you you should think or be or do, yeah. or do what you think you should be or think or do. And you, you're going to have to take some flack from somebody. And if you don't, you're just going to yeah. get pushed around and you're going to be all over the place. And I think that that could be a very painful experience experience as an individual, regardless of what level of society you're in. And so it's a lesson that I think it would be an interesting one to learn. Absolutely. Jesse, thank you so much. We went way over time than uh, we normally do, uh, which is awesome. Thanks everyone who stuck around here. Jesse, where can people find out more about you and then find out more about Sweater? Well, I'm really only on LinkedIn. So if you search for Jesse Randall on LinkedIn, I'm sure I'll pop up somewhere. You know, I, I love having new followers and, you know, having people jump into conversations with me. Uh, it's very much my purpose on LinkedIn. So you can find me there, probably nowhere else. And then Sweater, you know, you can check out everything on the website and see sweaterventures.com or download the app directly. We've got tons of information and tons of content about venture capital, you know, the basics of venture, how Sweater itself works, you know, and lots of resources for both individuals and founders. So uh, you do not have to set up an account. But unfortunately, as of today, you do have to be located in the U.S. to download the app. So okay, okay. So I cannot download the app. Thanks a lot, Jesse. I'm going to get a private you gotta get VPN a US or phone something. Number. You got, you got, all, you've got all these U.S. companies you own. You need to uh, <laughs> give the times, man. <laughs> uh, Jesse, thanks again for your time today. Hey, uh, my pleasure. Thanks for the invite, Jordan. Hey guys, we hope you really enjoyed today's episode. Can we ask you a favor? Hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode and share this with your e-commerce store owner friends. We also love reviews. So if you could leave us one on Apple Podcasts, that would mean so much to us. Just a reminder from the beginning of the episode, our team at Mindful Marketing is rapidly growing and we have room for one new brand a month that's looking to grow. Now, before you apply, please know that we're only looking for businesses that are ready to scale and have the capacity and the inventory for a large influx of orders. This opportunity is only available to brands that have had at least one year of sales history and are ready for explosive growth. If this sounds like you, go to mindfulmarketing.co slash apply and start the process today. I hope you guys have a great week.